following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. find your way to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. We'll be continuing on our study, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Matthew. You know, as a general rule, people like heroes. I mean, just look at television, movies, news reports, and, and what you'll see is that people are often looking for a hero. So what, just for example, what was the typical ending of the old uh, Western movie? You had, you, yeah, right, there you go, that's right, right off into the sunset, you got a cowboy, sometimes he have a white hat, and uh, he'd be... Riding off into the sunset, you know, defeat the enemy, rescue the girl, and they ride off into the sunset. That's a happy ending, right? Pick any action-adventure movie for the last 25 years, maybe even further back, and there might be all kind of different details and circumstances, but the basic plot line is going to be the same. Good versus evil. You have... Uh, a hero, you have a villain, you have good forces battling against evil forces, right? And that's, in some, however, it works its way out into the plot. You have an evil character that's wreaking havoc on society in some way, shape, or form. You've got a good character that's fighting against him in an effort to preserve the welfare of the people. And the crowds always are pulling for the good guy to win out over the bad guy. It's just a kind of an innate desire for good to triumph over evil. Well, the Bible's no different. In fact, you could make the argument that the reason why all these other things are so is because of the Bible's plot line. The Bible charts the original battle between good and evil. And so you have many, many accounts of events that occurred throughout history. About, you can read about those in Scripture. But the important thing to remember about the Bible is that all these smaller events throughout history are really part of one larger story. So in the Bible we call that a grand narrative. It's the, the big picture of the Bible. And so this big story, this overall overarching plan that's being worked out is told in terms of four major events. We've talked about this some in, in the past. You have four major events that are running throughout Scripture. You have creation, you have the fall, then you have redemption, and then one day, restoration. And those four major plot movements tell the big picture story of all of Scripture. Every smaller story fits into that in some way, shape, or form. 
And so as this big story flows, these other smaller stories have to be seen and then interpreted through the lens of the big story. Does that make sense? So you got, if you've got creation, fall, redemption, restoration going on, that's the, the big story. So let, let's say that's like the 35,000 foot view. Well, when you zoom in to the 1,000 foot view and you see these other small stories, all of them are representative of the bigger story. And they fit together. The other detail about the bigger story that we have to remember is the cast. See, friends, there's an evil character in our story. We have an enemy. And that enemy is relentless. This villain is constantly trying to undermine everything that's good in the world. But let's not forget, we also have a hero. And his name is Jesus. And so, we can't allow ourselves to get distracted by the characters in these smaller stories to the point that we lose track of the characters of the bigger story. So what I mean is this, the villain of every story in the Bible is the devil. But the hero of every story is Jesus Christ. And in the Bible, the hero always wins. And so we're going to see in this passage of Scripture today some smaller stories in the bigger story that demonstrate this truth to us, I think, very clearly. So I'm going to read today Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And we'll go through the end of the chapter, verse 23, and look at three different things about how God has purpose in what He's doing. The purposes of God. So follow along with me, if you will, beginning in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Scripture will be on the screen for you if you'd like to follow along there. Here's what the Bible says. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet, uh, by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life 
are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Father, in Jesus' name I pray that you would speak clearly to our hearts, give us understanding, and empower our obedience. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. This message today, each portion is very similar. And each one is set off by a particular word, sometimes a conjunction, but sometimes a, a, a kind of a, a time-sensitive directional word. So each of these paragraphs begins with one of these short terms, and, and there's three of them. One in verse 13, one in verse 16, and one in verse 19. Now, then, but. And each one directs us to another part of the story. But each of these three segments have something in common, and here's what it is. Our God is sovereign. He is almighty. If He were not, He would not be God and He would not be worthy of worship. But He is. And I'm thankful. So as we look through this text today, I want us to see very clearly the sovereignty of God, the almighty nature of the one we worship. So let's take a look at each of these sections and see what God is doing. First of all, now, verse 13. You see this first paragraph, it's only three verses, 13 through 15. The wise men depart, the magi have, have gone their way because they were warned. In fact, if you were to look back in verse 12, God is constantly in communication with people. He is leading and directing and guiding. He says in verse 12, Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So they have departed, but they're listening. Remember, Herod made a little deal. Hey, y'all, when y'all go find that baby, you come back to me and let me know so I can come and worship him. They knew that was not really the case. It was not his intention. God warned them in a dream, so once they found the Christ child... They departed, verse 12 says, by another way. They did not go back to Herod. So after the wise men depart, now an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, gives him some direction. You see, rise, take the child and his mother, go to Egypt, remain there till I tell you, Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Now why in the world would he do that? You see... There's two ways to live in this world. We can live in surrender and submission to the God of the universe. We can be obedient to Him. We can follow His Word. We can listen to the Holy Spirit. We can be obedient to the direction and the guidance 
of the Creator. Or, we can just kind of do whatever we want to do and hope for the best. We can ignore the fact that God is sovereign over all creation. We can ignore the fact that God has created everything that exists. We can ignore all the truth that's here in Scripture. And we can just kind of do our own thing. Now, it doesn't take long for us to figure out, usually, that when we go that second route and we just try to do our own thing, it might seem like it's going to go well, but it never does. Eventually, things go haywire. That is why in Proverbs, more than once, the Bible tells us there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is only death. And there's a way that seems right, but there is a way that is right. God's way is right. So Herod is not following God's way. Herod is following his own agenda. And his own agenda includes him being in power and not being uh, any, uh, in any way threatened. And so he has to put down any opposition. So he understands because of the truth of Scripture. Even in his rebellious state, Herod understands who this child is. Because do you, re do you remember what the Magi said to Herod when they went to him to discover his uh, location, the, the baby's location? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That was their question. Now, now you remember who they're talking to? They're talking to a king. <laughs> but they asked the king... Where is he who has been born king? So you know what that means. Herod's about to not be in charge. And so he's threatened by that. So naturally he wants to put an end to that. He's not listening to God. He's thinking selfishly. He's thinking, hey, if I'm going to stay in power, then we've got, we got to deal with this. Which is why God warns Joseph... Take the child and his mother, go to Egypt, stay there till I tell you. Because Herod's about to do something wrong. So Joseph obeys the word of the Lord. He rises, he takes the child and his mother. By night, he departs to Egypt. Now this is about a 75-mile journey to the border. Not a short trip in those conditions. He stays there until the death of Herod. Now, in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1... We see this prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. So remember who Matthew is, remember who his audience is. Matthew is writing to a mostly Jewish audience. Jews will be relying on the Old Testament Scriptures. So all throughout this Gospel, Matthew is constantly pointing back and saying, Hey y'all, you remember this prophet? Remember when he said this? Well guess what? It just got fulfilled right here. He's constantly connecting the Old Testament prophecy with the life of the Messiah. He's proving to them, this is your Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, this fulfills that scripture from Hosea chapter 11. 
D.A. Carson would write it. The point is that God took sovereign action to preserve His Messiah, His Son, something well understood by Jesus Himself. See, this is not arbitrary or random. And I believe, as I've told you, as a Christian, not as a pastor, as a Christian, I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in coincidence. I don't believe in chance. I believe in Jesus. And I believe that He is over all creation. God has preserved the life of the Messiah by sending them to Egypt now. Number two, then, verse 16. So now then Herod sees he's been tricked. The wise men have tricked him. Bethlehem is six miles roughly from Jerusalem. So... That's the distance that has to be covered. That's where the Magi left. When they left Herod, they went to Bethlehem. Herod is furious, so he has a plan now. He delegates this responsibility. Granted, he does not do this himself, but it's as if he did because he's responsible. He destroys all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region, that vicinity. Now, before we... um, jump to any conclusions, I want us to understand some context about what's happening here. Now, Herod, just in general, Herod was a terrible man. He was a violent man. He, he killed three of his own sons because of his disagreement with them. He was a terrible person. So violence is not something new to him. Okay, But understanding the context of why necessarily this would not have... Um, made the front page headlines, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. It was normal for Herod to behave in this manner. And Bethlehem and the surrounding area was small. Um, estimates, historical estimates say that the population during that time of that area may have been uh, no more than about a thousand people, probably less, which would put the number of male children under two years old, that's a very specific category, probably less than 20. Okay? So it's not like Herod's out there, you know, killing thousands of children. Terrible as it is, it was not many. So with Herod's reputation, you understand what I'm saying, it it probably would not have raised all that many eyebrows in the culture because that's just who he was. He was a terrible man. That's why... Sometimes you look and, well, you see, well, why didn't the other gospel accounts mention this is terrible? You know, it seems like that would make the account. Well, that's why. Herod was just being who Herod was, a terrible, evil person. And so he hatches this plan that he's going to uh, destroy all the male children two years old and younger. Uh, One commentator estimates that at this point Jesus was between 6 and 20 months old. So he would have certainly fallen in that category, which is why God had them sent to Egypt. Now here is another prophecy fulfilled. Remember, uh, Matthew's always pointing to prophecies in the Old Testament, always trying to tie those two things together, the events of Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies. (coughs) Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. It's quoted in verse 18. Jeremiah 31, 15. In fact, Carson would add this. This was not a narrow escape. 
the one enthroned in heaven, laughs and scoffs at the Herods of this world. Despite the tears of the Bethlehem mothers, there's hope because Messiah has escaped Herod and will ultimately reign. The tears begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. And the heir to David's throne has come. The exile is over. The true Son of God has arrived and He'll introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. So when this weeping happens in verse 18, and you understand that the mothers in Bethlehem are overcome with grief as their sons are murdered by this evil king, all because he's more intent on his own authority and leadership than he is on being a good king for the people. There's still hope. There's still hope because Jesus the Messiah is being saved, being guarded, preserved, so to speak. So we have now, then, but, verse 19, the third and final prophecy fulfilled. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph another time. He says, rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. Those who sought the child's life are dead. So what does Joseph do? Exactly what God tells him to do. He obeys the voice of the Lord. He rises, he takes the child and his mother, he goes to the land of Israel. But, there's a little hiccup in the plan. Herod's son, Archelaus. So when you look at verse 22, right here at the end of this passage, Joseph hears about this other guy who's reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod. So naturally, Joseph is afraid. But before he can get too scared, guess what happens? God shows up again. And warns him again. He's warned in a dream. He withdraws to the district of Galilee. So Joseph goes and lives in a city called Nazareth. Now, isn't that coincidental? What do we call our Savior? Jesus of Nazareth. Coincidence? Nope. Because when we read the Scriptures, we see in verse 23, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, if you're paying close attention, I know what you might be thinking right about now. Where is that in the Bible? Where does it say he's going to live in Nazareth? Well, funny you should ask. Because specifically, that exact prophecy is not in the Old Testament. But here's what is in the Old Testament. We're looking at general prophecy versus specific prophecy. Now, when you have Hosea 11 verse 1 and Jeremiah 31 verse 15, very specific. When you have Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, very specific. When you see Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, he's going to come into town riding on a donkey. Very specific. Now, here we're talking about a general prophecy about the Messiah. He's not saying that a particular Old Testament prophet foretold the Messiah would live in Nazareth. What he's saying is that the Old Testament prophets in general foretold that the Messiah would be 
despised. And this is where Nazareth comes into play. Nazareth, I want to be careful when I say this. You ever been to, um, to a real big city? And I, I don't mean Columbia. I'm, talk, <laughs> I'm talking about like Atlanta, Charlotte would maybe qualify, um, Houston, Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth. You know, uh, Los Angeles, New York City. I'm talking about a big city. Now, if I and my country self walked up into a city like that, I would probably not be respected. Many of us would not be necessarily respected as soon as it was found out where we were from. You've probably seen this in television, on movies, and and things like that, where uh, I I think the the one that sticks in my mind is um, a a movie from years ago with Kiefer Sutherland and Woody Harrelson called The Cowboy Way. And a friend of theirs goes missing, and they drive from New Mexico all the way across to New York City, and they roll up in their 1984 Custom Deluxe Chevrolet pickup truck, and they're riding down New York City streets and everybody's, you know, honking and moving them out of the way. They go find a restaurant and they sit down and they don't know how to, you know, abide by the cultural norms and, you know, they're trying to order food and people just laughing at them and treating them with disrespect. Meanwhile, who they are, their character, is far greater than most of the people they're encountering. So when you look at this biblical story and you see Nazareth, it's as if Jesus is the country boy that goes to the big city. Just by his geography, he is disrespected. He is despised. He is thought very little of. He's he's assumed that he will be uh, a nothing. He's assumed that he won't know anything, he won't know how to do anything, can't talk right, can't act right, can't do right. That's kind of a presupposed opinion of those with whom he comes into contact. So in this story, in a very similar way to the real culture that we live in, that's how Jesus will be treated, that's how he will be looked down on because of his hometown. So when you say Jesus of Nazareth, when you look in the book of Acts and the early church is beginning, when they say Jesus the Nazarene, or they refer to Christianity in the book of Acts as that Nazarene sect, it's meant as an insult. It's meant as a term of derision, looking down on them because of, oh, he's from, he's from Nazareth. You know, he doesn't know anything. He's not worth anything. It's that kind of mindset. So that general prophecy, he was despised. I mean, think about Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3. I alluded to Isaiah 55 earlier. And we think about the suffering servant. Verse 3, Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. A lot of that had to do with where he was from. 
he was naturally despised. It was as if no one gave him a chance. No one bothered to say, well, I don't want to jump to conclusions. I don't want to judge. Why don't I get to know him? Why don't I find about you know, his family and his home and his character and his likes and dislikes? Why don't I get to know him as a person? No, no we're just going to... We're going to size him up right away. We're not going to bother to spend any time or invest any energy. We're just going to already go ahead and decide, well, he's not worth anything. He's from Nazareth. He's no good. So we're to understand, as Leon Morris would write, the prophets as pointing to one who would be despised and rejected and Jesus as fulfilling this by his connection with this obscure town of Nazareth. He's of no consequence. Funny thing is, just as Jesus in his ministry, when he would call people who the world thought were of little or no consequence, when he would use people for his glory who were thought of by the world as of no consequence, it's as if he did that because he endured the exact same thing on purpose. He went to Nazareth so he could come from obscurity so God could demonstrate his glory with the way he used the Messiah. So, these three sections from verse 13 to verse 23, three instances of fulfilled prophecy all about the Messiah, how God is working out his purposes to move almost like pieces on a chessboard. I'm going to move you from here to Egypt because this is going to happen. I'm going to move you from Egypt over to Israel, but then I'm going to move you to Nazareth. I'm going to orchestrate the whole thing so that my plans and purposes will be fulfilled and my glory will be revealed. That's what God's doing because He is Almighty. So here's the thing when we get to the end of this passage. There's three questions I think we should ask and answer. Three things we should look at based on this scripture. First of all, what does God want us to know? What do we need to know based on this scripture? Well, first of all, God is sovereign over all creation. God is sovereign over all creation. These aren't accidents. Joseph didn't just wake up and say, hmm, I wonder what might happen today. Hey, hey, honey, why don't we move to Egypt? I know it's a, you know, it's a pain. I know we got a lot of stuff here. We got a donkey we can ride, but it's only seventy-five miles on foot across the desert. Let's go. Hey, and let's do it at night too, so maybe we'll get into trouble because we can't see where we're going. It'll be great. I know we got a newborn and all, but come on, let's go. Any takers? No. Nope. Not a man-made plan. God said. Then when it was time to leave Egypt, go to Israel, go to Nazareth, God said. See, He's sovereign over all creation. He's got a plan, and it's going to come to pass in His way, His time, just because, hey, this is personal. This is personal. You ever scratch your head? God, what are you doing? Anybody ever been there? This week? Today? Recently? What are you doing? God, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why, why is this happening? I've asked that question plenty of times in my life. Why is this happening, God? I don't understand. Well, first of all, God doesn't owe us an explanation. 
He's almighty. He knows what He's doing. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means maybe we don't know. And probably if He told us, we probably mind be blown anyway. Okay? God is sovereign over all creation. The second thing we need to know is that God leads those who are His. He gives direction. He gives guidance. And He expects obedience. Because, guess what? When Joseph obeyed, was it not for his good? Was it not for the good of the Messiah? Was it not for the good of his family? He, he didn't understand. But his obedience was not contingent on his comprehension. You understand what I'm saying? If we look at God in the face and say, Hey God, I'm not taking a step till you explain this to me. Really. Because we know so much more than God. Unwise. That is unwise. When God gives us a command, He doesn't expect negotiation. He expects, yes sir. Thank you for loving me enough to direct me. Thank you for caring for me so intimately that you would help me and guide me and show me the right way to go. That's the response to God. That's what we need to know from this Word. But the second question is this. What does God want us to do? What do we need to know and what do we need to do? Well, one thing we need to do is seek the direction and guidance of God. He's given us His Word, and in His Word we have His direction and guidance. So therefore we need to be consistently reading and studying His Word. We've talked about this probably now for three years at least. Every one of us needs to be every single day spending time reading God's Word. Every day. There's no... Um, substitute for that. If, we want, if, you, if you want to know what God wants you to do in life, if you want to hear God's voice and see His hand and, and understand His direction, read His Word. It's right there. He speaks to us. He has spoken in His Word. So we need to be consistently seeking the direction and guidance of God. Also need to pray that we might be conformed to His will. We all have this, this way that we think is good. Remember Proverbs? Well, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it only ends in death. So we need to pray to be conformed to God's will. In other words, take our agenda. God, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm trying, I'm trying my best, but I know you know everything, and, and you know what's best for me. So I pray that you'll help my desires, my will to be aligned with yours. You know what's funny about that? There's a verse in... Psalm 34, that speaks exactly to that. I think it's Psalm 34. I know the verse, but I may have the address wrong. It's in Psalm. I'm not going to waste your time by looking for it right now, but here, somebody will find the address and tell me what it is. Here's the verse. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's pretty much verbatim what it says. I just can't remember the exact chapter and verse. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. You know what that means? It, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean 
Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you whatever you want. That's not what it means. It means delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you new desires. He will give you the desires that should be in your heart. If you delight in Him, He will change your desires. The preacher used to tell me, He'll change your want-tos. 37-4. Thank you, sir. 37-4. I have my, have my number switched around. 37-4, not 34-7. Psalm 37-4. Thank you. Pray that our will will be conformed to His will. And the third thing is be obedient. Be obedient to God's Word. We see what we need. You know, when I disobey, when I sin, it's not because I didn't know better. I knew. I'm just a sinner. And so I, I, I sin. By the way, that's a real good principle we all should get a hold of. Help us understand who we are. I'm going to say it right now. Listen real close. I'm going to say it as clear as I can. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Does that make sense to everybody? We're not called sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That's our nature. That's why we need Jesus. That's who we are. And so it's not because I don't know right from wrong. It's because I have disobeyed. So we need to pray that we conform our will to His, we need to pray that we'd be obedient. Last question. Last question. We, we see what we need to know, what we need to do. Now how about this? What does this teach us about Jesus? What does this Word teach us about Jesus? Very simply, it's this. Jesus is the hero of every story. Hey, David and Goliath... Who's the hero of that story? Jesus. It's not David. It's Jesus. It's God through David. The exodus from captivity. Moses goes and gets the people. Who's the hero of that story? It's not Moses. It's Jesus. And I say Jesus because Jesus is God. You understand what I'm saying? This might be the most important thing we learn about Jesus from this word. He is the hero, and the hero always wins. Now, I know it may not seem like Jesus is always winning. I understand that. But, I'm going to use an illustration from the sports world. You know what the most meaningless statistic is in a football game? The score at halftime. The game's not over. And we've got to play the whole game. You ever hear coaches say this? It's a 60-minute game. It's a 60-minute game. You've got to play the whole game. Well, guess what? We're walking through this life. And it might not seem like Jesus is winning. But if you do this when you read something, flip to the end and re read the end of the story. I assure you, Jesus wins. He always wins. So when this whole game of life has been played and there's nothing but zeros on the clock of eternity, I promise you, Jesus is the victor.
of all time. So, we know what we, what God wants us to know, what He wants us to do, what we learn about Jesus. Now, so what do we do right this minute? Call on Jesus. It's that simple. Call on Jesus. He is not just the hero of every story. He wants to be the hero of your story. He's your Savior, your Rescuer. He is the only one who can save you. Because He died for our sins on a cross at Calvary. He shed His blood. And He is victorious. So call on Jesus. That's the only answer to our problems. Call on Jesus. You can do that today. Call on Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.